Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM Louisville. Also streaming worldwide at forwardradio.org. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 363. Today's topic is migration from Central America. We'll be looking at a document from the White House called U.S. Strategy for Addressing the Root Causes of Migration in Central America. This is relevant to climate change because it's part of U.S. foreign policy. The U.S. is the world's most powerful country and history's largest, most powerful, and most pervasive empire. Our foreign policy makes all the difference in the world to our climate, to the natural environment, and to biological diversity. Also, the United States sits atop an empire of military bases. All this has a big impact on climate. Plus, our so-called intelligence community is worldwide. And not least of all, we have corporations worldwide. And this, you know, attempt to help Central America address the root causes of migration, you know, the the corporations are going to be involved with this. Uh, Our NGOs are going to be involved with this. And the military and the intelligence community are all going to be involved with this. And honestly, we have the ability to make great positive changes, but we're the ones who have to change. If we want to address the root causes of migration from Central America to the United States, then we are the ones that have to change. So what do we mean by Central America? Well, by some reckonings, Mexico is included in Central America, and by some reckonings, not so much. I consider Mexico part of Central America. You know, Central America is not a continent. It's part of the North American continent. So it's all North America, but, you know, North America, as in the United States and Canada, is a very different place from south of the border. So there's a reason to want to have something called Central America, and it includes Mexico, if you will, the biggest country, going from north to south. Mexico, and then next is Guatemala and Belize. You don't hear, you hear hardly anything about Belize in foreign policy, but you hear a lot about Guatemala in foreign policy. Next down is Honduras and El Salvador, side by side. Honduras on the Caribbean coast, El Salvador on the Pacific coast. Next down is Nicaragua, which is on both coasts. It goes all the way across. It's on the Caribbean coast and on the Pacific coast. The next down from that is Costa Rica and then Panama. But what we're mainly talking about in terms of immigration A whole lot of immigration comes from three countries, and that is El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras are kind of like three peas in a pod. They're they're very similar in in their long-term relationship with the United States in that they have, for time immemorial, been puppet regimes of the United States. Also Panama, but you know the Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador are very much puppet 
regimes of the United States. I mean, in 1953 uh, or 1954, the, the United States said, oh, you want a democracy? Sorry, you're not going to have a democracy. We're going to, you know, uh, we're going to kick out your democratically elected leader and we're going to put in our guy. So, uh, so that's a prevailing theme. Honduras same thing in 2009 during the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. It's like hey, uh, the, the popularly elected leader of Honduras was Manuel Zelaya. He wanted to raise the minimum wage just a little bit. And the United States said, you know, the corporate power said, oh, sorry, can't have that. So Manuel Zelaya was ousted in a military coup, and Obama and Hillary Clinton turned their heads the other way. It's like you're not supposed to be able to, under U.S. law, you're not supposed to be able to support a regime that was uh, that that is the result of a military coup. But Hillary Clinton said, "We're going to call this a coup. It's just not a military coup." And, you know, Obama and Hillary Clinton showed that, you know, they are the loyal and faithful servants of corporate power. And that's how that happened. Uh, El Salvador, you've got, wow, El Salvador, the Civil War in the 80s, that place was was butchered. And, uh, you know, largely due to the fact that the United States was supporting the dictatorial militaristic uh, oppressive regime and keeping it from being taken over by the people of El Salvador. So that's what we're about in this region. So here's the introduction. Let's just read this introduction to set the tone for what they're going to be saying here. This is a document from the Biden White House, but Kamala Harris is like the project lead on this particular project. It says, it is in the national security interest of the United States to promote a democratic, prosperous, and secure Central America, a region closely connected to the United States by culture, geography, and trade. So far, so good. COVID-19, extreme weather, and severe economic decline are compounding long-standing challenges in the region, forcing far too many Central Americans to conclude the future they desire for themselves and their children cannot be found at home. It's like, wow, if you were from Central America, wouldn't you rather stay at home or would you rather come north where the winters are colder? Hardly any of these immigrants want to come north. They do so for economic reasons. And I will argue that those economic reasons are largely caused by the United States, almost solely. So it says of the immigrants, it says, they have lost hope and are fleeing in record numbers. Persistent instability and insecurity in Central America have gone on for too long. Poverty and economic inequality, pervasive crime and corruption, and political leaders drift toward authoritarian rule have stunted economic growth and diverted critical resources from health care and education, robbing citizens of hope and spurring immigration. The worsening impacts of climate change manifesting as prolonged periods of drought and devastating storms 
have exacerbated these conditions and undermine U.S. and international interests. All of these factors contribute to irregular migration, and none of them can ultimately be addressed without honest and inclusive democratic governance that is responsive to the needs of citizens in the region. You know, all of this is fairly you know, benign and non-controversial. It's when you get into the details that it starts to kind of be a little bit concerning. Still on the introduction, it says, This strategy lays out a framework to use the policy, resources, and diplomacy of the United States and to leverage the expertise and resources of a broad group of public and private stakeholders to build hope for citizens in the region that the life they desire can be found at home. And it's really tragic that the life they desire cannot be found at home, and it's mainly because we have not left them alone to run their own affairs. It says the U.S. government consulted with a wide range of stakeholders to inform this strategy, including governments in the region, members of Congress and their staff, international organizations, civil society organizations, labor unions, and the private sector. Consultations will continue throughout implementation. So it's almost as if, I mean, they're trying to convey the idea that, hey, we're really trying here. Kamala Harris's introductory comments in the beginning even say, in Central America, the root causes of migration run deep. So they're talking about, you know, we're trying to address the root causes of migration. It says, and migration from the region has a direct impact on the United States. For that reason, for that reason our nation must consistently engage with the region to address the hardships that cause people to leave Central America and come to our border. For decades, our nation has engaged in Central America. Often well-intentioned, the engagement has often not been consistent. And over the last few years, the United States significantly pulled back from work in the region. So what they're saying here is, look, we just haven't been trying hard enough. We were engaged before, but then we got busy and distracted and we did something else. As if the United States has not been fully engaged and on top of that region like white on rice in every way that matters, including intelligence, military, trade uh, sanctions and mandates, and not least of all, propaganda. If you're just joining us, this is Hart Hagen with the Climate Report on 106.5 FM Forward Radio, Louisville. This report has five pillars. Pillar one is addressing economic insecurity and inequality. Pillar two is combating corruption, strengthening democratic governance, and advancing the rule of law. Pillar three is promoting respect for human rights, labor rights, and a free press. Pillar four is countering the, and preventing violence, extortion, and other crimes perpetrated by criminal gangs, trafficking networks, and other organized criminal organizations. I mean, it looks good on paper, but, you know, we are usually part of the problem, a bigger part of the problem, and we are not part of the solution. If we wanted to be part of the solution, we would back off and leave these countries alone militarily and economically. So let's look at Pillar 1, Addressing Economic Insecurity and Inequality. 
The strategic objectives include fostering a business-enabling environment for inclusive economic growth. So the overarching problem in these countries is corporate power that is aided and abetted and facilitated by uh, the World Trade Organization, the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, the, these and the uh, you know Caribbean Free Trade Agreement. Free trade is just really it, 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 it's bad for the environment. It's bad for labor. It's bad for small business. The only people it's good for are governments and especially big businesses. For example, you know, free trade allows the United States to dump commodities in these countries. Uh, you know, maybe it's rice, maybe it's chicken parts, uh, but you know, maybe it's corn. But free trade allows us to dump commodities in these countries in a way that it's bad for the local markets, it's bad for the environment. Plus, if any country that's a party to NAFTA or another similar trade agreement, if, if any country that is a party to the agreement um, wants to do environmental regulations or labor regulations or health regulations or have a post office, um, then they can be sued uh, by corporations. A Mexican corporation can sue United States uh, state, federal, and local governments, and vice versa. U.S. corporations can sue uh, Mexican and Guatemalan companies uh, if they feel that somehow these countries are promulgating regulations that benefit their own people if it cuts into their profits, if it might compromise their profits and almost the corporation wins almost every one of those lawsuits so it puts a a real dampener on the sovereign right of a country and its people to say here's what we want to do here's how we want to run our affairs here's how we want to protect the environment here's what we want to do for our public health here's what we want to do for labor Another thing it says here is, uh, you know, a strategic objective is to build resilience to address climate change and food insecurity. Well, the trade agreements I was just talking about, they prevent economies and from organizing locally. They prevent countries and cities and regions from having a good, strong local economy. So if we wanted to build a resilience to climate change, to address climate change and food insecurity, it says here, now this is the United States pretending to be able to help Central America address the root causes of migration. And, you know, the striking thing is the, the amount of hypocrisy it takes to even write a document like this or to be able to talk about it with a straight face as if it's something real. You know, you don't ask a criminal to solve your problems for you, and we are the criminal in this case, and we have no credibility in solving these problems. But it says, you know, we're going to help promote legal certainty. It says, weak rule of law is often cited as a top factor limiting new investment 
in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. That's those three countries I was talking about. The three puppet regimes in the region, as opposed to uh, Nicaragua, which is completely independent of the United States, and Nicaragua has done everything it can to stay out from under the boot of the United States. That was the reason for Reagan's war on Nicaragua, where the, you know, the Contras were trying to get back the Somoza regime in the, in the 80s. The, you know, the Sandinistas took over in Nicaragua in the late 70s in the Carter administration. And then throughout the 80s, Reagan funded the, the ex-Somocistas, uh, the people that had been in the Somoza government, and they were kicked out. And so Reagan gave them arms and said, you know, go make war on the people that are running the government. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, a decade-long terrorist uh, campaign against a democratically elected government that happened to be socialist. And so, you know, with all of this terrorist activity, sponsored by, paid for by the United States, orchestrated by the United States, now we're the ones talking about the rule of law. But it says a weak rule of law is often cited as the top limiting factor, uh, top factor limiting new investment in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. We will work with the private sector, governments, and civil society to strengthen transparency, promote business ethics, and foster predictable legal and regulatory business environments. All that sounds nice, but, you know, go country by country. In, in Honduras, Honduras has a very high rate of impunity. That means crimes do not get punished. Well, it's the United States that stood idly by while the uh, government of Honduras, the popularly elected government of Honduras, was kicked out in 2009. Plus, for time immemorial, we've had the School of the Americas, this, you know, just training terrorists, training the police to be uh, terrorists and oppressors. says here, we're going to promote investment-enabling reforms. says the United States will partner with regional governments, multilateral development banks, and private sector to promote reforms to address structural impediments to investment and facilitate greater private sector participation in these economies, leveraging the U.S. government partnerships with these entities to support business development and create jobs. Well, the private sector, privatization is a big part of the problem, not a big part of the solution. It's like privatization is where you take land and you know you 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 deprive people of their land you take uh you know communication systems and okay the government developed this but it's going to be sold to some private investor hey guess what investors don't do thing uh, do things out of the uh, out of the kindness of their hearts they put money in because they want money back out and the popular mythology is that that is good is that there's this something creative going on when you do a business and you make a profit and you get money back out but as a practical matter in especially when the u.s is dealing with foreign countries especially the small countries the poor countries they are extract they they are part of the, the they're the problem not the solution they are uh you know just 
ex exploiting and extracting. Now, the last part I want to share with you under this pillar one, addressing economic insecurity and inequality, it says we're going to build resilience to address climate change and food insecurity. The United States will partner with governments and the private sector to facilitate um, the development of agricultural practices to ensure farmers can better respond to the impacts of climate change and extreme weather events. Again, the United States has been big, the biggest part of the problem in these things. You know, when I talked about the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. The Sandinistas were freaking bombing hospitals and schools and uh, agricultural cooperatives. You know, the farmers, the peasant farmers, would like to be able to band together and create cooperatives and unions so as to be able to you know, do what they do better. And, you know, if we would allow that, it would be local, it would be sustainable, it would take into account indigenous wisdom and knowledge. It would be low on fossil fuels, if you want to talk about addressing climate issues. But that kind of common sense, you know, give people freedom and let people operate locally is just not how we operate because the United States is not about freedom and it's especially not about allowing other countries and the people in other countries to be free to organize and conduct their own affairs as they see fit. From the United States standpoint, it's all a game of extracting wealth. It says here the United States will support improved agricultural production and income generation to reduce food insecurity while supporting sustainable food systems. We will support efforts to improve crop resilience, adopt environmentally and economically sustainable agricultural practices, and improve land and water management, improve the resilience of residential commercial and public buildings and core public infrastructure and mitigate the impacts of and support more rapid recovery from hurricanes and uh, other severe weather events. Okay, let's take these items phrase by phrase. It says the United States will support improved agricultural production. If you want improved agricultural production, then what you do is you stop doing plantations. Uh, the United States has uh, imposes on these countries uh, these economic realities that say, you know, we're not going to support the small farmers. We're only going to support big plantation owners. And one way you support big plantation owners is, for one thing, letting the, the police just go in and mass murder people who are getting in the way, who don't want to move off of their traditional lands. And another way is you only provide capital to people who, you provide capital to the people who need it the least. You provide capital to, you know, the big landowners. You don't provide capital to the smallholders. And the smallholders, I'm sure, would say, hey, you know, you don't have to provide us capital. Just let us work our own land. But that doesn't happen. It says the United States will uh, support income 
generation to reduce food insecurity while supporting sustainable food systems. What is a sustainable food system? A sustainable food system is where you have good soil health. It's where you capture rainwater. It's not where you uh, with heavy, it's not where you plow with heavy tillage. It's not where you use, make heavy use of fertilizers, heavy use of insecticides. You know, a lot of these plantations in these countries, uh, you know, they don't have to comply with, um, you know, environmental requirements related to pesticides and related to runoff. And, and so, you know, the amount of DDT in mother's milk in Guatemala has been at astronomical highs in the past. Because it's not about health, it's not about resilience, it's not about you know, sustainable food production, it's about extracting wealth from these countries, the people be damned. If you're just joining me, this is Hart Hagen with the Climate Report on Forward Radio 106.5 FM Louisville. The surprising thing about this document is how little they say about agriculture. I think probably the more, the less they say about agriculture, the better. I mean, if you want a, uh, if you want a country or a region to be sustainable, and if you want it to be able to support the people. If you want the people to be able to stay in their homeland, then agriculture is key. You know, without agriculture, there's not food unless you import the food. And that's part of the problem. There's too much exporting and importing of food because the whole system is geared to plantation owners. And it's not geared to the needs of small producers. And it's not geared to the needs of consumers. But, you know, agriculture is the key to climate, it's the key to economic um, health and well-being, it's the key to social resilience. It's, you know, Wendell Berry said, if, you know, if the, if without strong local economies, the people have no power and the land no voice. We have deprived the people of Central America of their strong local economies, and we've just for time immemorial, imposed on them, you know, a plantation uh, mentality and a plantation-style social relationships and the, the economics that goes along with that. So I've got a couple minutes left. I want to share with you what to do instead. You know, what do we need to do? Instead of all this nice-sounding language, how do we really help the people of Central America so that they can stay in their homeland and not be driven northward by economic necessity. And here it is. You know, give these countries their resources back and give them their freedoms back. Let them run their own countries. Acknowledge that we do not have, we do not have a real democracy. Stop pretending that we are the world's leader in democracy. We need to get our own house in order before we tell other countries how to run theirs. If we let them run their own affairs, then they can do that much better than we can do it for them. You know, they are not poor because uh, they are slow. 
They're poor because they've been robbed, and that's the most important thing you need to know about uh, Central America and South America and the rest of the third world. They are not poor because they're stupid. They're not poor because they're slow, and if there's corruption there, it's because we have facilitated that corruption. There's going to be corruption in every place, but we have multiplied the corruption in these places at the expense of the people. Oh, look at the time. Bye now.